Welcome emergency departments across British Columbia. Sign your charts. You've reached your end of shift. You're listening to End of Shift, the podcast brought to you by the BC Emergency Medicine Network. I'm your host, Eric Angus, along with my friend and colleague, Joe Higgert, bringing you an eclectic mix of clinical pearls and discussions about the philosophy and practice of our craft and yours, emergency medicine. This is episode number nine of End of Shift, Physician, Discipline Myself. We will be talking to Dr. Bruce Campana. Dr. Campana is an attending emergency physician at the Victoria General Hospital clinical associate professor at UBC, and currently is the medical director for enhanced medical staff support under the Vancouver Island Health Authority. He also practices hyperbaric medicine at VGH. Bruce did his medical school at McGill, came out west to intern at St. Paul's, and completed his emergency residency in Denver. He returned to work at the Vancouver General Hospital and has also looked after Hollywood stars and Saudi royalty. He is a frequent keynote speaker at emergency medicine conferences, even the ones he hasn't been invited to. (laughs) So, Bruce, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much, Eric. And Joe. So, Bruce, I think I am one of the few physicians around, or I should probably say one of the many physicians that, uh, that you helped train. I'm talking back in 1988. I was a resident from 88 to 91. And you were one of my attendings, and uh, you made a big mark on me. <laughs> Joe, uh, you know, you're right. I started in 87 in, in Vancouver, and uh, Dave Harrison was my first resident, and you were the second resident. And uh, I'm trying to think. There's only one thing I taught you, because I think I learned more from you than you learned from me. And there was a, yes, a condition on a finger, which I've now forgotten, of course, and that, that says something. It was a Whitlow. Herpetic Whitlow. Seen it before, and you knew it, and I did not. But that was you're you're being modest. You taught me a tremendous amount, so thank you very much. So you you trained down in um, in Denver, as did Ron Walls and Grant Innes, and you trained with well under the legend Peter Rosen. Can you tell us a bit about what made Denver such a hot spot for emergency medicine, and tell us a little bit about Peter Rosen as well? You know Denver was at that time in the mid 80s it was the place for emergency medicine so i have no idea how i got in but peter rosen was there there was a guy named john marks who unfortunately passed away a few years ago who was brilliant uh and and at that time in emergency medicine it was run by the residents Uh, but you would get peter and john out in emergency sometimes if there was a big case or somebody had asked for advice but in general, we tried to keep them contained back in the office so that we could actually have some fun. Peter himself was, you know, you know, you, you meet celebrities and you, after about a minute of meeting the celebrity, you think, that's it? And it wasn't that way with Peter. With Peter, you thought, oh my gosh, he's everything that people said and he's so much more. He, he was a brilliant man. Uh, as you know, he died actually almost uh, almost a year ago, November 11th of uh, 2019. Uh, he was brilliant. He Peter could speak on any subject and give an absolutely brilliant talk and something that, you know, I would have to prepare several months for. 
and he would just stand up and and wax eloquent. He was that kind of a guy. He, and I'm going to say something that's heretical here. He wasn't that good an emergency physician. He was brilliant. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. Uh, and Peter could run a trauma like nobody else, but he wasn't that good an emergency physician. He, he would take forever. I mean, Peter would see like five patients in a shift, and, and it would be great. Uh, and he could certainly guide you and stuff and help you make decisions. But to have Peter running an emergency department by himself would be a profound disaster. But he had this gift. He had this gift of letting us know that it was better an error of commission than an error of omission. It was much better to do and be wrong, to do that LP that you didn't need, to intubate when maybe you didn't have to, than to not do so. Always better to do the test or do the procedure than not to have done it and been wrong. And he taught us that. And he taught us not to be afraid. And he taught us other stuff. Peter, would you do, you do this hellacious shift. And then he put his arm around you at the end of the shift and said, let's go have some eggs. You do a night shift, you go out for breakfast with you. I mean, what attending does that? And this was Peter Rosen. This was the God paying attention to a first-year resident. But that's what he was like. And that's why he, he left a, a, a stable of admiring people because not only was he brilliant, but he was, he was warm. He was caring. He embodied what many of us wanted to be as an emergency physician and as a person. It sounds like he totally inspired you. Had Peter Rosen um, started the textbook of emergency medicine when you were there in Denver, or is that kind of around the same time? They already had the first edition out, and I can't remember the exact date of the first edition. Maybe 82, uh, I'm guessing there. And I remember I was, I was first year, I was just coming into my first year in Denver, and I don't know if I had met him. And I was locking up my bicycle, and this guy walked up to me and said, Hi, I'm Peter. And I, I said, oh, hi, I'm Bruce Campana. He said, yeah, I know. He said, uh, do you want to do a chapter in the, in the textbook? And I, <laughs> I just sort of my, picked my jaw up off the, off the ground and said, yeah, sure. Uh, on what? Because it didn't matter, of course, because I didn't know anything about anything. So he could pick anything he wanted. And he said, well, why don't you do uh, back and neck pain? So I said, sure. And that was, <laughs> that was it. That was how he got his textbook written. And I didn't have a clue what to do. I had never written an article. I didn't know anything. And uh, and I, I did, I don't know, I think three uh, three subsequent editions. And it was uh, an incredible experience that I never, ever want to have again. <laughs> so um, you came from Denver to Vancouver um, and you worked under or with um, Ron Walls, who was the uh, chief at Vancouver General Hospital um, at the time. Uh, before he went to um, Brigham and Young in um, Boston. Can you tell us a bit about Ron and working under Ron and what, what that was like? Ron Walls was, so there are three, three Canadians in Denver that, that in many ways transformed Denver. Ron Walls and Grant Innes and Mike Murphy were the three Canadians. They, they were the, the holy trinity. And they, uh, they convinced Denver that, they wanted Canadians. Ron and Grant and Mike were, they were good friends there. They were just, they were unstoppable. 
they were awe-inspiring. They revolutionized the residency. And then coming to Vancouver, I, I mean, I didn't know that when I started my residency, but, but at the end of it, I certainly knew it. And I came to Vancouver, and there was Ron. But Ron came there with this huge reputation, and people resigned right, left, and center before he got there because they were all afraid. They were afraid that this guy's going to come in, going to make them do research, going to make them actually be accountable. And then, and then many came back when they realized that, you know, it wasn't going to be terrible. And in fact, he, Ron single-handedly transformed Vancouver General into a relative powerhouse of emergency in, in the country. But I remember we were doing rounds with how Ron, that moment where Ron made his name and we were doing rounds. It was some case where somebody had had a cricothyrotomy, which we, we did a lot of back then. If you coughed, you got a crick back then. And, Ron had invited anesthesia there, and and at the time, anesthesia in general had quite a jaundiced view of emergency. And Ron was talking about something and pointing out that that a number four shyly uh, was about the same as a number six endotracheal tube. And one of the anesthesiologists stood up, clear, oozing contempt for emergency and for Ron, and told Ron. Not only was he was he wrong, but he was talking nonsense, and it was you know he obviously didn't know what he was talking about. And Ron didn't get angry, and Ron actually looked quite pleased. And Ron reached into his pocket, and in his right pocket he pulled out a number six endotracheal tube. In his left pocket he pulled out a number four Shiley, and he walked up to the anesthesia guy, who you, you could see had gone several shades pale, and handed them both to him and said, "Can you tell me, Doctor Smith?" Is there any difference between the two inside diameters on these tubes? And the poor guy looked at them both and said, that they're the same. And he sat down absolutely deflated. And Ron, with that one act, elevated not only himself, but emergency to a, a much higher status in the hospital. Just to provide some context, back in those days, emergency physicians intubated with Demerol and Valium. Yes, were not part of our meds that we could even get our hands on. That's right. So the only way we could intubate was going to be a nasal tracheal intubation, like say in a big trauma, or a thyroidotomy. So I recall working with you, Bruce, and I don't know how many cricothyroidotomies we did with traumas. There was no team. It was just the patient came in. We try nasal tracheal intubate them. Intubate them. We try Demerol and Valium, and then we do a cricothyroidotomy. So it just gives, I mean, some of the younger emerge physicians out there probably haven't even heard this before, but that wasn't that long ago. We're talking late, late 80s. Yep. And doing, oh my gosh, Joe, do you remember doing the nasal tubes on people, the, the epistaxis we cause? I, and I, I don't know what percentage of nasal tubes we actually got in. 30%? I don't know. They were, they were brutal. They were awful. And I remember thinking... There must be a better way. And I remember other people thinking who hadn't been educated about C-spines. And they kept saying, I think we're okay to, to intubate and just sort of be careful about the neck. But there was such a paranoia about C-spines back then that, uh, yeah, you came in with a trauma. We couldn't easily tube you. You got a crike. And then Grant Innes, of course, was the third person. We talked about Mike Murphy, who he went to Halifax, right? Yeah, Mike's done a bunch of stuff. He's done stuff in Halifax. He was in the States for a while, and I honestly don't know where he is now. And then, of course, Grant Innes is kind of halfway between um, Calgary and uh, North Shore, right? 
That's right. So Grant works in Calgary and uh, and has a home in North Vancouver, and uh, and he's brilliant. I mean, Grant is one of these. He's, he's the opposite of Ron in many ways. I mean, he's he's similar to Ron Walls in that he's he's brilliant. Um, but Grant, as brash and loud as Ron is, Grant is the opposite. Grant quietly accomplishes things, quietly astonishes people, and is just a a plain solid brilliant good guy and don't and don't get me wrong grant is anything but a pushover and has this incredible dry sense of humor like like when grant speaks there's sand blowing around he is dry but oh my gosh he's funny it's just amazing um how denver was such a hot spot and how so many great physicians came from there i mean peter rosen eventually went down to i think it was san diego that's right and then um ron and you and Grant, you, you all came to Van, you came to Vancouver. Mike went to, to Halifax. I think Alan Chow from Burnaby. He also came yep, down. That's right. As well. That's right. It um, it's just amazing how it's like a little kind of a nidus of, of emergency medicine and how it all kind of started our specialty. It certainly gave a, I think, a boost to Canadian medicine. I don't include myself in that group. That's very kind of you to say that, but there were some. Those were brilliant guys. Those those were guys that were the leaders. I mean, Ron hasn't done what he's done at Brigham and Women's now. He's now he's out of emergency and he's totally administration. He's like he's CEO of the hospital or something ridiculous like that. Ron, the 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 guy from Prince George, BC, and uh, Grant, of course, starting CGM and running various emergency groups and being one of the premier researchers in the country. I mean, and Mike Murphy has accomplished tons of stuff and led departments. Those were the those were the giants. But Bruce, you knew about Herpetic Whitlow. You know what? That's about the only thing I knew, and I was probably wrong about it. But thank you, well, Eric. Thank you. I just gotta, I got to say thank you for all your teaching, and I'm still learning. So so thank you. Well, that's uh, I'm proud that you would say something like that. I have much more to learn from you than you from me. But uh, it was a pleasure, Joe. Okay, so I think everybody wants to know, well, why can't you settle down? Or maybe you finally have. So you were basically at Vancouver General, and then I think uh, Saudi Arabia, and then I think Victoria. Why did you move around so much? You know what? I moved around because I could. So let me just tell all the, the young emergency physicians out there, you are in the specialty that, that is unique in many ways. First of all, you're going to learn a ton of useful stuff about everything. But never mind that. You're going to have the ability to move around more than almost any other specialty. So take advantage of it. It's, it's great to stay in one place because it's comfortable and, it's, and it gets easier. And that's what's wrong with it. You, if you move around, you'll see how stuff is done in, in other places. You'll be able to work in other parts of the world. And you know what? You will learn stuff no matter where you work. You'll learn stuff about that place, and you'll learn stuff from other people. And it, and you may stay a year and hate it, but I guarantee you will learn stuff. So, Joe, as you, as you said, I, I, I worked in uh, Vancouver for a while, and then I actually went to California, Southern California. I joined a group, one of the few last private groups that, you know, they made huge money. And so in my first year there, I worked mainly nights. Uh, I had to 
buy into the group for $120,000. This is 1992. And then I got paid 50% of what I earned. And then I worked mostly nights. And so they were a group that was famous for eating their young. So I put up with that for about two years. And there were a few docs there that were amazing, emergency docs that were just, that were brilliant. And, and I learned from them. And I learned stuff and I have stories. And there were docs there that I thought, I'm going to learn from them. But what I'm learning from them is what I don't ever want to be. And I'm going to make sure I teach other people not to be like these doctors. You know, I'd totally forgotten about you going down to San Diego. And then you went, which is super interesting, was going to Saudi Arabia. And I, I'm, I know you've got some great stories from Saudi. Oh, I could, I could take up the rest of your podcast with Saudi stories. I mean, Saudi Arabia, you know how it is. Sometimes you go to a place and it's just the right time with the right people and it's just blind luck. And that, that was the case in Denver, and this was the case in Saudi Arabia. It was just, there was a, a huge cohort of Canadians. There were Americans, there were Australians, New Zealanders, and, and, and lots of Middle East people. And, and, you know, we all kind of hung out together. And we went there, and within 24 hours, my wife and I were trying to figure out how to get out of there because it was so totally foreign. I mean, the word culture shock is thrown around. That was culture shock. Not only was it 11 or 12 hours time difference, so we completely upside down, but we went down, I think, in June initially, and it was unbelievable. It was Hell's Kitchen. And my wife and I, you know, from Vancouver, we looked outside and said, whoa, it's sunny. This is great. And so we put on clothes and prepared to walk across the, the block or whatever to get to a, a mall. And we were probably out about 100 feet. And I thought, I'm going to pass out. It was hotter than I had ever felt before. I thought, I'm, I'm going to die here in this gray rubble that we're walking across. We had no idea. It was absolutely brutal. But then we started meeting people and realized, you know, it's, there's this incredible camaraderie. It's like being in a, a university of residence that people look out for each other. There, was, there were bonds formed. And it was the most amazing social experience. It was a fascinating place. And uh, one of the things is that the king wanted American doctors. So I was on the group of doctors that were assigned to the king. So every five, six weeks, I would have to go for a week to the palace. And I would have to be within about 10 to 15 seconds of the richest man in the world waiting for him to die. Because when he did die, they wanted somebody to blame. So you can imagine in the first week I was in the palace, I would be put in a room that was literally next door to the king's bedroom. And I didn't sleep for a week. And then once you've done this a few times, you realize they call very rarely for anything. And you slip into this, this state of boredom, which is as close to unconsciousness as I've ever encountered. It was just this, this unbelievable lethargy that you simply can't do anything. You think, wow, could you imagine having all this time? You could write that story and you could study and read. You can't. You, you are sort of, if your eyes could have X's on them, they would. It was just unbelievable. And then you get a call. Maybe the king's going for a drive or something. So everybody would have to run out to these cars and be this chaotic uh, bunch of limousines driving around all over the city. Or else 
if the king got sick, God help you. So one night the king got sick and the king threw up. And so they come and get me and say, we need to go see the king, which didn't happen very often. It happened a few times. And uh, so I get called to the king, go into the royal bedroom. It's about two in the morning. And he's, of course, on a king-size bed. And I have to kick the queen out of bed and uh, crawl into bed with the king of Saudi Arabia. And then I find out that the royal anesthesiologist was called to start an IV on the king, and he failed. So he's gone. So it's two in the morning. I'm in the bedroom of the king of Saudi Arabia, and I'm handed an IV set and said, and this guy saying, can you start an IV on the king? <laughs> no problem. Okay. And uh, I think, okay, well, you know, he doesn't have any veins. He's got fragile old skin. Take a shot at it, and then they'll send you back to your room. So I put the tourniquet on, and I clean off, and I'm looking for a vein, and I see this tiny little purplish line in his hand. Put the IV in, and I got the IV. And so taped it up, and everybody was happy, and then I walked off, and I finished my week there. And then I'm in emergency about, I don't know, three weeks later, and this messenger comes up and hands me an envelope. And it's from the custodian of the two holy mosques, which is the king's official name. And then it was a check for $32,000. So we bought a car. That's the kind of stuff that happened, not very often, but that's the kind of thing that would only happen in Saudi Arabia, that you get this thank you thing, a $32,000 IV. Can you imagine doctors would be starting IVs all the time if we had that kind of incentive here? You should have started two IVs, Bruce. I, I should have said a central line. <laughs> Another person was there who belonged to a different specialty who did a percutaneous procedure on the king and got a check for $250,000. So, you know, they were good at expressing appreciation. There was one time that the call went out. They needed somebody to go in the King 747, pick up the Amir of Kuwait and fly him to London, England because he just had bowel surgery. And nobody wanted to go. So I said, ah, sure. I go there, we get on, they've, they've gutted the 747 for the king and it's in, it's now this custom huge plane with a fantastic bedroom in the, in the front of it. And we fly to Kuwait and we sit around for five days and then, then we pick up the Amur and we fly to London. Basically, I'd set up all these oxygen tanks in the plane because the guy was on oxygen. He had some metalectasis. He was a little hypoxic. And we take off and I'm with this paramedic friend. And I say, okay, well, we're in the air. We're somewhere over the Mediterranean. We better get the oxygen hooked up to the Amir. And he said, what oxygen? And I said, I, I asked for a bunch of tanks to be put on. And he said, oh, I had them put off because I thought they'd be too heavy. And I thought, okay, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> so we, uh, I go look at the Amir of Kuwait who's starting to get cyanotic. I said, okay, well, we need to do something. So we talked to the captain. The captain says, oh, you're going to have to hook into the emergency oxygen supply of the plane. And he points to this trap door in the floor of the plane. So this paramedic and I are climbing down in the bowels of this plane. And we salvage all of the, you know, those masks that hang down when there's an emergency in, in an aircraft. So we have to get them all. We cut all the tubing. We hook the tubing up uh, with tape, about 100 feet of it, and run it into the, the bedroom of the plane at the front of the plane, the nose of the plane, and get it hooked up just as the sky's starting to turn a, a deep maroon. And the family says, is everything okay? And we said, sure, <laughs> everything's, everything's fine, we said. <laughs> and we, we made it to London without him dying. And then, of course, about two weeks later, I get another envelope, and it was like $15,000 with thanks from the uh, Amir of Kuwait. You were there for two years? 
Yeah, you had to be out, they said at that time, two years with no ties to the country. Revenue Canada required that in order to list you as truly out of the country. And then, you know, after two years are up, you think you're going to go back, but you sign on again because, because it's not just the money. It's the people, the experience. So you went back and you went to uh, Victoria, right? No, we came back. I, I mean, they got tired of me showing up at Vancouver. I mean, I, Vancouver, I left for California, came back to Vancouver, leave for Saudi Arabia, come back to Vancouver. They were getting a little annoyed at me because I seemed to be having a very good time. Um, so I came back to Vancouver after Saudi Arabia, I stayed for a few years, and then, uh, and then my dad died. And my dad said before he died, he said to me, don't do what I did, son. Don't wait until you retire. Because so my dad retired. He got diagnosed with dementia, cancer, and his, and his wife left him. His second wife, not my mother. And, um, and so my dad passed away, and my wife and I looked at each other and said, where do we want to be? And why aren't we there? And we both liked Vancouver Island. And we thought, you know, you get one kick at the can. Who knows if I'm going to get pancreatic cancer next year or, or what? So I might as well, we might as well do something. And uh, so I interviewed in Victoria and I said, ah, you know, we love you. Uh, there's no jobs. Don't come here. There's no jobs. There's no jobs in the foreseeable future. So Darlene and I went back, immediately sold our house and moved to, uh, moved to Victoria. And because I, I'd been around long enough to know that any emergency department that says they're fully staffed aren't going to be fully staffed in roughly six weeks. And within two months, I was turning down shifts because, of course, somebody got sick and somebody retired and, and there was more work that I could handle. And Victoria has been great. We, I did 10 years of emergency in Victoria with a, an absolutely superb group of physicians. And I like to point out, we didn't leave Vancouver because of Vancouver. We came to Victoria because of Victoria. I had a great job in Vancouver. We were very happy. But we wanted to, we wanted to move. We wanted to go somewhere else. And that's the beauty of emergency medicine. You're doing um, hyperbaric as well, right? For a week, every month or two? Yeah, and it, you know what? It, it's nice because I would do three weeks of emergency and I'd say, I, I am done. And then I do a week of hyperbaric. But on, hyperbaric, you're on call 24 7 for a week. So, you know, you're constantly, it's like being back at the palace. You're waiting for that shoe to drop and it's hard to relax. Always, I mean, I can't, you know, I, I have my phone beside me in the shower. I have my, I, I'm paranoid about it. But you know what? You do three weeks of emerge, then you look forward to your week of hyperbaric, you finish your week of hyperbaric. You look forward to your time in Emerge, and it worked out just fine. Are you still doing Emerge now, or are you done? I have mainly stopped. I'm actually on the roster at Saanich Peninsula Hospital, which is a lovely little hospital here, um, halfway in between the ferries and Victoria. So it's a nice arrangement. But I have, you know, here's my other bit of advice. Don't do three jobs. I was doing emergency and hyperbaric and emesis for about three months. And so I was working 28 days in a row. And that is bad for you. And I, and I, you know, I, you all joke around, all three of us joke around a lot. I'm not joking. It was bad. And I had never, um, never had any thoughts of self-harm in my life ever remotely. And in that period, I had one time where I actually 
thought about that. And, I, and that was what made me say, holy cow, uh, you need to do something different, my, my friend. This is, this is wrong. Uh, and uh, I, I realized, it made me realize how people can get themselves into that, that they get into that debt hole and they work and work and work and they think, I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing this to pay off debt. And in fact, what they're doing is losing their family and sometimes themselves. So uh, it made for a profound life change after that. It's, it's easy. That's great advice. Holy crap. Well, well, yeah. It's easy in our job to get consumed by it and think I'm important and they need me. And yeah, you are important. And yeah, they need you. But you know what? They can get somebody else and they'll be okay. Joe, remember a couple of episodes ago when Dave Houghton was talking to us, take home message at the end of that talk was don't get trapped. I'm glad you launched right into Emesis. I want to hear all about this. I never, ever pictured myself in any kind of administrative role. Uh, and I was used to administration being this, this ivory tower of people who were so disconnected from the rank and file, from the trenches, that they didn't deserve our respect or, or consideration even. Just leave them there, let them do whatever it is they do because they're not helping me. And, and I remember that in Victoria, they're having trouble with the docs writing their records, like doing their charts. And there was this new guy who'd come on who wrote this letter to the doc saying, come on, everybody, you need to write your charts. This is why... Uh, and if you don't do it, we're going we're gonna to have to take some action. So please just do your charts. And I thought, good for him. Instead of the usual administrative, cold, uh, clinical notes, he's telling them why and being reasonable and writing it like he's talking to a person. And then I guess he didn't get the response he wanted. And, uh, and then another letter came out saying, you know, guys, I, I told you what would happen. And so what's going to happen is you got two weeks and then we're going to, we're going to suspend your privileges. And I thought, damn, <laughs> I like this guy. And I wrote him a note and said, I know you're going to get shit from a bunch of people, but uh, I, I just want to tell you that I, A, don't have any charts that are outstanding, but B, I admire you and, and I don't want you to be discouraged by, the, you know, if you get a couple of snotograms from people, good for you for standing up for, for what's right. So, uh, and I didn't, I mean, I, I wrote it purely to support a fellow person who I knew was going to get barraged with, with negative comments. And uh, so then I got an email and said, saying, uh, what are you doing for coffee on Wednesday? So I sit down with this guy, Ian Thompson, and he says, you want a job? I said, what? He says, yeah, we got an opening for this EMSS. And I said, what's that? And he told me, and I Enhanced Medical Staff Support, which is about the most non-intuitive title anything can have. But what it turns out to be is a job that is kind of, I, I believe, unique in the province, that, that lots of people do medical staff, physician, midwife, uh, nurse practitioner, uh, discipline, if you will. They, they kind of do it as part of their job. Nobody does it as, as being their sole, uh, their sole job. And so Island Health and Ian Thompson specifically created this job to support and, if necessary, discipline physicians because they realized what they had is a bunch of people 
doing it part way and nobody devoted to it. And so it wasn't getting done well at all. And so it was inconsistent all over the map. Somebody would be getting, you know, significantly censured. Somebody else would be getting ignored. And the bottom line was that when people were getting bullied by a medical staff person, they didn't know who to turn to. And if they did turn to medical affairs, nothing happened. Or a lot of the time, nothing happened. And whatever happened wasn't consistent. And Island Health recognized that and said, you know what, let's, let's create this position and make it better. And so uh, myself and John McDonald, who's a, a is same age, John, but John's a very experienced uh, human resources guy. He and I kind of got thrown together, and uh, and then everybody kind of ran away <laughs> because nobody wants this job because it means you've got to go up to people and say uh, you can't do that anymore. Um, and it's it's fortunately it's gotten away from uh, you get it a letter or an email saying you must come to the the CMO's office on Thursday and uh, you're in trouble. And, you know, which is, it's like being called to the principal and nobody likes that. And there was no proper way to, well, there was a proper way to do it, but it wasn't done. And you show up there with your legs shaking and the, you know, if it was a male CMO in the old days, you'd pour your glass of whiskey and say, hey, you, you shouldn't pinch the nurse's bums anymore. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And you'd leave there not really having a clear idea as to whether or not you're supposed to do that anymore. And that's changed. A lot has changed, obviously. Society has changed. But now, I mean, obviously, to do something like that, you're in a lot of trouble. But it's not, and that kind of thing is fortunately, it's, it's rare. There's something that blatant. But what there's a lot of is that there's a lot of bullying. Uh, surprising. And it's not the classic one is, is is male surgeon and female nurse, as and that's not hard to imagine. But you know what? There's a lot more than that going on, and there are there are um, a lot of situations that have been going on for years, and people are scared, or they just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, "Oh, that's Doctor Smith. That's just the way he's are. He, he's a really good whatever surgeon." So we just look the other way, and that's so wrong. And then you find out that there are people, when they hear Dr. Smith is on duty, they call in sick or they get sick uh, or they, they hide or they, they get stress reactions because this toxic ass has been bullying them for 12 years and nobody's done anything about it. And, and, and I mean, that's sort of one extreme. The other extreme is somebody makes a, a silly offhand comment, you know, that, that, that lands badly on somebody and uh, and somebody needs to take them aside and say, hey, hey, Joe, when you said that, I don't think you meant to hurt their feelings, but that really, that hurt so-and-so's feelings. Might be a good idea to, to maybe think about that, maybe go apologize to them. So that's, that's the other end of the spectrum because the, the truth is the vast majority of, of medical staff want to be good. They want to do a good job. They don't want to annoy or hurt people. They don't. And there's this very small proportion that are pathological. And as you can well imagine, that very small proportion takes up a disproportionate amount of our time. And, and it's a, it is a whole different skill set. And the good thing, again, here's another good thing about emergency, is that I know a lot of people. Because in emergency, you are at the center of... of the universe, if you will. You are the fishbowl. You are the fish in the fishbowl, and you look all around you. 
Whereas, you know, orthopedic surgeons, they don't know who the cardiologists are. But we in emergency, we know everybody. So being in this position, I know these people. And having some gray hair and having been around a little while, and then, you know, we ran a conference a few times, and people just know me enough that I, I have some street cred so that when I phone up and say, hey, can we talk about this? It's, it's easier than it might be with somebody who nobody knows. And the other thing is that we've tried to get away from discipline. We're into more support. If Dr. X does that, and Dr. X is a, a decent person, there's a reason Dr. X did this thing. What is the reason? How can we help Dr. X to A, realize that what they've done isn't actually a good idea, and, and help them not do it again, and do it in a non-punitive way? That, that's the key. This job doesn't involve going around looking for people to punish. That's the last thing we want. We want everybody to function at their best possible capacity. That's what everybody wants. We're not out, it's not a job out to punish. There are some people that, you know what, you, you go through that. You go through everything to support them and, and figure out what's wrong and educate them and counsel them. And then some people need the stick. They need a stick wave near them and say, you know what? We've spoken to you. We've tried to help you. If you do that again, then it's going to go badly for you. But you know what? There's not many people that need that. We're dealing with with pretty intelligent, functional, high-functioning people. And so most of them want to turn around and they want to be the best they can be. And we got to keep that in mind because sometimes it gets frustrating. Last week, even though I was at Hyperbaric, I was still in touch with stuff. It was a tough week. It was tough. Sometimes it is hard to tell somebody that they are not doing things as well as they should be. Doctors don't like hearing that. And it hurts them. I mean, it, it's, it's funny. We're all basically little kids in school. And to have the principal say, I think you can do better, especially, you know, high, high achieving professionals, it really, really hurts them down deep. And I get that. Bruce, besides the bullying, what are the most common reasons that you and John are consulted? What comes to your attention? You know, there's, there's quite a range of stuff. Um, and it, it actually would make for a good lecture, but you have to be careful, obviously, that you don't say anything that people can identify. Um, you know, people, the most common thing we see is that somebody is being difficult, that there's a, there's a challenging relationship. And I know the politically correct thing is to say, well, you know, both, both parties are to blame. No. You know what? Usually there's one party to blame quite a bit more than the other party. And that's sometimes hard, surprisingly hard to figure out. Um, but it's usually disagreements. It's usually people not getting along for some reason. And it, and it, you know, to us may seem like a minor thing, but when it's something that you, you go to work every day, knowing that this person's going to be there and that just the noise of their breathing will get your back up. Yeah. And I, am not joking that, that you're obviously when you're, when you're in conflict with somebody, 
you're hypervigilant, you're hypersensitized, and anything they do that somebody else might do, and it, you don't notice it, when they do it, it drives you crazy. And that's the kind of thing that we try to work with, and we try to figure out what's going on. Number one, is there something happening in that person's life? So you'll, you'll talk to them. Uh, one, one individual was bordering on violent with a colleague, like out of the blue. And so we approached him and there was, uh, it turns out he had gotten a, an absolutely horrible medical diagnosis, uh, just recently. Uh, I'm, you know, obviously we're always worried about somebody drinking, uh, where alcohol is an issue. Yeah, that happens. We're not, we haven't seen that much of it, but yes, it's around, uh, divorce, um, family problems mental health issues in the family and sometimes mental health issues with the physician. Just talking with somebody at the college uh, today and they are seeing with COVID both in the spring and now uh, an incredible spike in mental health challenges among physicians, like a, a huge noticeable spike in the spring and now um, that is uh clearly COVID related where, where you said it was COVID it was uh, uh, and mental health issues among the physicians themselves and then challenges with the children of the physicians the mental health challenges with, with the, uh, the, the kids um, so yes that's the kind of stuff we run into but you know in terms of the classic stuff we run into I say it's two ticks ticks uh, you know the uh, on one end of the spectrum, the autistic physician, and the other end, the narcissistic physician. And okay, so and just so your your listeners don't write in and say Campana is making fun of autism and narcissism, I'm not. I recognize these are these are serious diagnoses. I'm I'm using them to illustrate a point. So on the the autistic spectrum that we run into is the I don't know the, the pick a pick a specialty. That uh, that doctor turns to the nurse and says, "You did a really bad job, and you nearly killed the patient." And they're not doing it to be mean; they're doing it because they don't have the insight to understand the weight of their words, because there's a power over structure there that that physician may not even appreciate, and they're just emotionally immature, and they don't they don't get it. And that's somebody that we can work with. We can say, you know. Dr. X, when you do that, it actually hurts a person. So here's what you should say. And we can give them a clear guideline or we can have them do a communication course and they're fine. The tough end is the narcissistic people. And they are the ones that say, why don't all of you agree with me? You're all stupid. What I want to do is obviously the right thing. And I'm going to make your life hell if you don't do what I say. And those are the ones that tend to be, they've been going on like this for years, and it is hard to change them. Bruce, have you been actually called upon by our American colleagues to consult on Dr. Trump? Because maybe the Dr. Trump <laughs> benefit from... <laughs> no, they haven't. Uh, I'm waiting for the call, but no, I, I haven't heard anything. No. <laughs> you know, the television personality I think about is that, remember that old show with Dr. House? Yep, yep. He was sort of the picture of the narcissistic, brilliant physician. He was, but he wasn't 
as toxic. Some of these, some of these individuals can be, I mean, you know what, they can often be very good doctors. And I think, I truly think a lot of them don't want to be what they are. And they sometimes don't have the insight to realize the, the impact they're having on other people. And they, they honestly don't understand it. And it's, uh, it's a challenge sometimes. And, and very often, obviously, as you can well imagine, you go in and say, you know, I want to help you. And they don't want your help. They, they in fact, would like you very much to leave them alone. And that's a tough part of this job. And it is, it's been over a year now I've been doing it. And it is sometimes talking to people that I regard as, you know, as friends and colleagues. And to have to go up to them and um, indulge in a difficult conversation is is a part of the job that nobody likes. And that's why a lot of the division heads and department heads are glad to have us there because they do not want to sit down with a colleague and say, and say, you know what, you're, you're, you're messing up. There's not many people that want to do that. There are a few that are very good at it. And my, my job is actually to act in a consultative role. But a lot of times you can see them just kind of pushing the sheaf of papers over to us because they do not want to touch this. And I get that. So how are people referred to you? Is this after people have had an initial talk, say, from their department head, and then they realize, oh, that's not going anywhere? So how do you, how do you hear about these people? Well, there's, there's a bunch of ways. It's a great question. So certainly one of the commonest ways is that the medical lead will give us a call and said, you know, I've, I've spoken to Dr. X about this before. I don't seem to be getting anywhere. Um, I think we might need to, to escalate the intervention. Um, another way is sometimes we'll get a call from somebody directly. Uh, maybe a nursing supervisor who might call us directly and say, uh, we're having trouble with this doctor. Uh, and then we'll always, we'll always involve the medical lead because um, you don't want to have them in the dark. There's also, and I don't know how many health authorities have a, a respectful workplace division. I, I, do you guys have that? Where that's uh, where the non-medical staff will you know, be held accountable for their behavior. So a nurse might have a problem with a physician and they will go to respectful workplace and respectful workplace will contact us. And we work hand in hand with respectful workplace because we're trying to do the same thing. We're not there to get people in trouble. We're there to try to fix the problem so that patient care can be the best possible. And so they'll come to us and say, this is it. And we'll look into it together. And, uh, and they're very good. The respectful workplace people have been doing this a long time and they have a very well-worked-out system, and ours is surprisingly primitive in medical affairs. You know, doctors always want to be treated differently, and so you get the VIP syndrome, where it's not as good as the regular. So we're learning a lot from respectful workplace people and and trying to come up with a relatively standardized uh, but effective um, and fair way to deal with problems. And we've actually started recently, we we you know, even within our own health authority, there's multiple different, you know, one hospital treats people one way and another hospital does something the other way. And we're trying to standardize stuff across a health authority. But also, we've reached out to other health authorities and we're trying, we're just now starting to get um, 
the people who do our job and other health authorities and trying to talk to them and say, what do you guys do? Like, what do we have in common? What works for you? What doesn't work for you? And how can we learn from each other and, and maybe have a standardized approach across the province that would be better for everybody? You mentioned uh, sometimes when you dig around with a physician that you may find there's some underlying issues, whether it's personal illness or something like that. Well, are there some other common themes or circumstances that you discover that predispose doctors to behave in, well, I guess what I would call an unprofessional manner? Is there something that is consistent that you see? Uh, that's, I mean, that's a tough one. There's a lot of different things. Somebody, I think it was Groucho Marx, if I can paraphrase, doctors are just like everybody else, only more so. Doctors, there's a lot of pride. Um, there's a lot of book smarts, but sometimes not so much in the way of people smarts. It's interesting. And, and doctors who are looked up to by society, when you actually look at some of their personal lives, they're absolutely chaotic. And what's miraculous to me is that some of these people function quite well medically. And then you look at their home life and you think, oh my God, how do they get along? How do they get by? Um, what's the most common, I mean, if there was a, an underlying theme, I, I always go back to fear. You know, if you're trying to figure out why somebody's doing something that just doesn't make sense, it's fear. And what are they afraid of? They're afraid of not making money. They're afraid of not being respected. They're afraid of being found out that they're not as good as people think. If you if you're trying to figure out why somebody's doing something, start with fear and then start looking at other stuff after that. This has come up just at our hospital with COVID and a couple of times physicians are getting sick. And so I'm actually building a small posse of docs that I know have good clinical skills that I'd like to bring on as locums. So I've thought of you, of course, Bruce. There are just a couple of locum questions I need to ask you to see if you'd be a good So, you know, don't overthink them. They're pretty easy. So the first question is, Tammy flu, yes or no? Once in high school, but Tammy and I just didn't really, uh, we just didn't hit it off, really. Uh, but it, it's embarrassing that you brought her up. Rank the following in order of physical toughness. Bruce Wayne. Bruce Campana, Bruce Willis, and Bruce Lee. You know, I'm go I'm going to go Bruce Wayne, uh, and followed closely by Bruce Lee, and uh, uh, and the Campana guy is going to be, he's actually going to be in a completely different room, and, and at the bottom and digging. All right, number four. Have you ever surprised your wife with a candlelight dinner in the hyperbaric chamber? You know, that is a, a, a very good question, and it would be a surprise to everybody. So just, just again, for people who don't know, so hyperbaric chamber, we pressurize it to, to typically two and a half atmospheres. So it's the same of 45 feet underwater. And then you pipe oxygen in, usually into these hoods. But if you wanted to have fun, you pipe it into the chamber. And then having the table set up and, and the candle, if you lit it, um, it would really, really be a surprise. To everybody, no, no candlelight dinner in the chamber. I hope you get danger pay for working in the hyperbaric suite. That's all I can say. 
now. It's, it's very safe. It's very carefully regulated, and we have no candles uh, in the whole unit. All right, number five. What is the name given to the physical finding of a crackling sound synchronous with the heartbeat? You mean like a Hammond's crunch? Oh my gosh, fantastic. Well done. So that's why I think that you are full of SH1T, Campana, when you say you don't know anything. Well done. <laughs> In which Ontario town did the tragically hip get their start? Was it Bob Cajun or Kingston, Ontario? You know, I'm going to say Bob Cajun only because I bought a wakeboard through the internet and it came from Bob Cajun. And that's, that's my rationale for saying that. It was in Bob Cajun, I saw the constellation reveal themselves one star at a time. I love the hip. So I'll send them off to our credentialing committee, Bruce, and uh, yeah, we'll see what they say. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. <Jared. laughs> So, Bruce, I wanted to know if their complaints or referrals are spread out across disciplines in our profession, or are there some areas that tend to cluster more? You know, that's an interesting question, and um, hard, actually. I mean, obviously, hard to get specific because island health is a relatively small area. But, you know, in emergency, we call these consultants and, and usually get an intelligent, reasonable person. And, and you know, you talk to radiology or, or you talk to cardiology or you talk to orthopedics and think, well, you know, they probably all get along. They probably all have Christmas parties or whatever. And um, what's fascinating in this job is the behind the scenes information you get where you find out that these, these departments that you think of as being a group of high-functioning individuals who must just sort of sit around hugging each other and surprisingly often, they hate each other. The, the, the level of dysfunction uh, among some of the members is astonishing. And, and I guess the credit goes to them that even though there is that level of dysfunction, how well they function and how little they let on to the outside world that there is that level of dysfunction. Uh, and it, it, I guess that's sort of a, a slap and a compliment. Um, but it is, uh, it's sad in a way that, that there is that level of unhappiness that if people don't complain about, we can't do anything about. And it, it, it is hard when there's, when there's sort of systemic dysfunction in a department. It's, often very hard to do anything about it because there's usually more than one person and and it gets exponentially more complicated the more people there are that are involved. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question. I can't get into specifics. Yes, there are some hot spots, both in terms of specialties, uh, surprisingly, uh, uh, but also in terms of areas of the island where you think, wow, I never would have thought that this would be a little cesspool. Uh, and there's, there's lots of advice I could give people. Uh, you know, be polite. Don't, uh, oh my God, don't make the jokes that Joe and I used to hear 
30 years ago to do some of the stuff that we witnessed or maybe sometimes took part in 30 years ago will get you fired. Uh, you, you, you won't have, there'll be no chance. There'll be no redemption for you. Um, it's just interesting to see where it happens and who it happens to. Uh, and sometimes you'd be surprised. You'd think there's no way that that group would be dysfunctional. They are the worst. I wanted to ask, I know you are well known throughout our community as being an excellent speaker and entertaining. And it makes me, it reminds me of Marshall McLuhan would say, anyone who tries to make a distinction between education and entertainment doesn't know the first thing about either, which I think is, is, is totally true. But Bruce, you're not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I want you to shine a bit here, but what do you bring to the process? Why are you the best person for this job? Well, first of all, I don't know that I'm the best person for the job. Um, but what do I try to bring to it is people do know me. I've been around for a while. Being an emergency, as we said, you're, you're kind of everybody in the hospital knows the emergency department. Everybody who works in the hospital deals with emergency at some point. So chances are I've run into them. Um, and we take referrals from across the island. So, you know, in Victoria, you tend to get referrals from all over the island. So I'm certainly, I've been visible and hopefully have behaved myself or been um, consistently decent enough that that people don't feel nausea when they talk to me. Um, having the gray hair helps uh, and uh, and just trying to be fair helps. You know what? So many of these people, they need to talk. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. My office, I, I have an office that I share with John and, uh, and my desk faces out and I have a shelf that has four or five different kinds of chocolate. There's a coffee maker, a Keurig coffee maker right there with cups and sugar and stuff and a box of Kleenex that's between me and the chair that's opposite the desk. And people sometimes come in just to talk because I, I want to make it a place where people want to come. They, they want to be in the office because very often they're in the office for not very good reason. Um, and having that Kleenex there, let me tell you, I go through a box of Kleenex every month. Um, so why, why am I good? I don't know. Because I'll listen. Because uh, I don't want to punish people. I do get angry sometimes at what some people have done. But you always got to think, why, why are they doing that? The vast majority of people do not get out of bed in the morning and say, I'm going to be an asshole. Almost nobody does that. And so hopefully there's a reputation of of fairness and of wanting to help. Do I have that? Do I have that better than anybody? No, of course I don't. Um, but I do the best I can, and it's important to me. And I think hopefully that comes across to people, that it's important to me that I do the best that I can. I don't know. Isn't that what we all want? I think so. And I think it's clear that you're obviously still curious because you want to dig into these people's lives and you, you want to do the right thing. You want to fight the good fight. So I do think you are a good person for the job. 
I would listen to something like this and maybe other people would listen to it too and say, well, what should I do or how should I behave to avoid trouble? And so what's just some general advice you would give to physicians about avoiding having to uh, come and use up your Kleenex and drink your Keurig and eat your chocolate? So, you know, and thank you for asking that. So, and and I don't have a, a scripted response to you, but here's, here's some general advice. First of all, just be decent to people. Just don't, don't get mad. You know, when, when people in the OR and, and it's a tense situation, it has never helped to get mad or to yell. It doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help the nurse understand. It doesn't help the technician to do a better job. And the surgery does not get done faster. In fact, they have shown that doctors that yell and are nasty actually have increased complications. Uh, So that never helps. Don't, as a rule, have sex with somebody that you're not supposed to have sex with. Just don't. Write that down if you have to. Don't say something to somebody or show them something that you would not show or say to your grandmother. So think to yourself before you open your mouth and you've got this really, really funny thing to say to the person who's in the office next door or, you know, the clinic nurse or whatever, would I show this to grandma? And if the answer is, huh, maybe not, hold yourself back because it's a different world and it's different now than it was three years ago. And it's different now than when Joe and I were in med school. It's very different. And and we roll our eyes and think, you know, it's ridiculous and, and it's so over the top now. And yeah, some of the stuff is over the top. But the fact is, you know, making jokes about stuff that we used to joke about, whether it's gender issues or racial stuff or ethnicity, uh, it's just not funny. Don't do it because it hurts people. And it's it's being what we all are, obviously white males, that we've escaped that. We've never felt that. We've never felt that sting. We've never been marginalized like that. And it's uh, And I think it's a good thing. I think it's an awakening that we're all uh, that's long overdue. So if you think, I wonder if this would offend somebody, like if you even have a hint of that, just don't do it. Does that mean we can't have fun anymore? No, of course it doesn't mean that. But don't have fun at somebody else's expense. Don't make fun of somebody. Don't tell jokes that, that might embarrass or hurt somebody. You can do better than that. We all can. That's what I would say. Well, Bruce, I think that the work you're doing with Emesis is tremendously important. And I thank you for doing it because it's looking after our profession and looking after us. And and that ends up looking after patients, which is the important thing too. But I imagine sometimes it might be a thankless task, but I'll thank you right now for doing this. Joe, do you have any last words? Yeah, I was just going to reflect a little bit on what Bruce just said. Because um, I, I was chief of the Emerge at Royal Columbian for about four years. And um, a lot of what Bruce has talked about, um, dealing with uh, difficult positions, dealing with uh, substance abuse. Yeah, it, I think if you're a leader, 
in emergency medicine, everybody's dealing with these sorts of things. And to have a person in Bruce, like, like Bruce and in that position to, to back you up and to help you would be, would be huge. I, I'm suspicious across BC right now. Most emerge chiefs probably are dealing with it, you know, kind of on their own a little bit. They're just sort of, they're doing it as best they can. And to have a, have a backup like Bruce is just, would be very useful. And other health authorities too. No, you're absolutely right, Joe. And and you know the old expression: if you build it, they will come. We're we are getting deluged. Um, and you're right. And people are kind of waking up to the idea that they can do something. I think Eric, you asked what what is the most common thing I see, and I think the answer to that is that people have put up with it. That is the most common problem I see is that people have been putting up with this behavior because they don't think that there, there's anything anybody can do about it. And now with this, and it's not just happening in Island Health. There, I know Brenda Wagner at Coastal Health is doing some great work with this. Um, people are realizing that this is wrong and, and it's bad for everybody. And uh, there's, there's a, an awakening going on that, uh, that I'm very proud to be part of. We're not going to fix everything, but we're sure going to try to make some things better. Thanks again, Bruce, for coming on our podcast and sharing your new role and, well, in our lives and all the docs in BC's lives. In the words of the late, great Peter Rosen, let's go have some eggs. Time to wrap it up and call it a day. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to post your comments and feedback on the BC Emergency Medicine Network website, bcemn.ca, and take a moment to check out the Clinical Resources tab with its clinical summaries and procedural videos, and visit the lounge to join in on member discussions, open up blogs, and access the End of Shift podcast library. Thanks to the network, and especially to Carolyn McKinnon, our editor extraordinaire. Until then, keep your differential wide and go play outside.